Hello, welcome to this week's Why Football podcast with me, Michael Dryden and Eches Adogru. This week, we'll be talking all about the late Gerard Houllier, his beginnings as a coach, what he was like as a manager and his legacy on the game. Before we start, please follow us on Twitter at YFootball underscore for our latest content. Please also follow and subscribe with us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and YouTube for immediate access to future episodes. Please also check out our new website, uh, yfootball.co.uk for short form articles and all our podcast content switches. How are you today? How was Bognor Regis as well? Yeah, Bognor Regis was good. Just to highlight as well on that website, you've got um, two fantastic pictures of uh, Drone and myself. If you'd like mm. either of those signs, just contact us using the contact page on the uh, <laughs> on the on the website or come into our Twitter. You got enough time. There's a couple of days till Christmas as well, depending on when you're listening. So you know, let us know, and um, I'll be sure to do that for yeah, you. Yeah, the, the first ten will be free, and then after that, it'll be probably forty nine ninety nine. That's a decent price. Uh, how is Bognor uh, quiet? Um, in one word yeah like it's nice it's like by the seaside and stuff so that's it's good but like uh where we were staying was nice it's good to you know be away from the city but it was very quiet some nice some nice uh pubs uh watch the manchester derby there which was very dull watch the aj fight which was pretty good um but yeah not much to report very windy very very windy (laughs) hello john how you doing uh, nothing's going on. Little to report as usual. Um, I spent some time actually in the summer down in Hastings on the south coast as well. That was quite nice. A bit different to be in London. Like, yeah, I've been up in the northeast for a lot of the second lockdown and tier three, but I spent a lot of the first lockdown in London. It's nice to get away, which is good. Uh, looking forward to some Christmas football, I suppose. New Year football as well. The calendar is looking pretty good. Liverpool look like they might be top at Christmas. Actually, when this episode goes out, it will already be decided, but <laughs> um, they look like they'll be top and could go on to get their second title in two years. Uh, subs are staying at three rather than five, which I thought was an interesting development uh, this week. Um, a lot of managers and a lot of clubs have voted against that because it's seen as potentially benefiting the elite because they've got bigger squads, more extensive squads, whereas the other side of the coin, people are arguing, doesn't have the players' welfare in mind because if there's injuries or someone potentially fatigued then they might not bring a player off because they're restricted by substitutions so it's interesting to be I think on that what are your thoughts on it uh, I get both sides I, I can see how it benefits the elite going forwards because I mean they can bring on just a swathe of talents but then I think we've seen this season how many muscular injuries there's been and obviously you had the concussion laws which have changed or sorry I have changed them as well I think it's a time when we we've it's become more prominent that player welfare needs to be taken more seriously. So I'd probably say five should be should be brought in. Mm, I agree with you on that one. And also to point out, nine subs are allowed on the bench as of today. Yeah, so they're they're they're, they're allowed nine subs, but they can only make three. So you know, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's it's still the same point, right? Yeah, it's still the same point, right? Where you know their options are still extended compared to smaller clubs. So I think slowly but surely, eventually they'll keep on pushing for it. And I think we'll see it in the near future. Maybe maybe next year, I think would be more accurate. Yeah, absolutely. So kicking things off, Eches, uh, on to Gerard Houllier. Why this topic? Well, unfortunately, um, Gerard Houllier is no longer with us. Um, you know, for some people in the game, uh, his impact was massive. And I kind of, you know, when I think about Jared Hooley, I think about his time at Liverpool and, you know, he made some success there. You know, the alternate treble as well, I like to call it, what he achieved mm. there. 
And but I didn't really know a great deal about his time before Liverpool, you know, his beginnings as a coach and after it. I remember briefly he was at Villa, but, you know, he was involved in the game right until his passing. So I kind of wanted to do kind of a tribute and looking back at his career uh, because, you know, it, it seems from what people say about him, he wasn't just only a great manager, but a great person as well. Yeah, absolutely. I've listened to so many tributes to Julian. Every single one is so consistent of you know, how he was as a person, how meticulous he was, but then also how warm he was as a person. I mean, even Darren Bent, I heard a, um, an interview by him on TalkSport where he talked about his move from Sunderland to Villa. <laughs> a touchy subject for my good self, but uh, he didn't have the best of times there, but still spoke so highly of Julier who signed him. And so I just found that quite quite interesting. Danny Murphy was another one. So it's 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 a real sad time. And you know, I think, as you say, loads of people won't be aware of his time prior to Liverpool. So it's good to explore that. So, Echez, how did Her- Gerard Houllier start his career? So Gerard was born in a place called Thorois in France. Uh, as an actual footballer, um, Houllier was never really going to threaten the pro ranks, but played at amateur level, much like myself at the famous Pearly Panthers. Oh, uh, yes, lovely. Yep, exactly. He completed a part-time degree in English from the University of Lille. Well, actually, he spent a uh, year abroad in Merseyside, so uh, it looks like that was fate. Mm. He's going to end up there. His first entry into coaching was at a place called uh, Le Toquette, where he was a player manager, followed by a role at fifth division side, Nule Min. There was kind of like the uh, light bulb moment for Gerard, uh, where he found his early success uh, achieving multiple promotions, despite having limited resources and getting them into division two. Kind of similar to like Graham Taylor at Watford, that like meteoric rise over yeah, a yeah, short yeah. period of time. After Nulemin, he was picked up by Lons in 1982. Uh, he steered them to fourth place in his first season, helping them qualify for the UEFA Cup. But he made such a big impact there that PSG appointed him as their manager. All right. His fifth division to PSG in, what was it, around 12 years? I mean, PSG yeah. were quite young at that time, weren't they, as a club? But still, mm-hmm. a lot of investment behind them and obviously a, a, a Parisian club with a lot to then come. Yeah, so yeah, PSG weren't the force uh, that we know them today, but they were still, you know, a big club. And he actually took them to their first ever league title in 85-86, and his reputation grew even more. After that, he became the technical director at France, as well as assistant to national team coach Michel Platini. Uh, After four years in those roles, he actually succeeded Platini as manager in 92 Kind of that's that was his first kind of negative in football because his time as the France boss wasn't particularly successful as mm. the team failed to qualify for the 1994 World Cup and no yes. one likes not coming you know achieving World Cup status. Did that World Cup actually happen? I've got no idea about that World Cup. Obviously, I do know what happened, um, but I just have no clue about that World Cup. I mean, I know obviously depending on your age, it will be it'll resonate more, but. Like, I know quite a bit about, say, the 1990 World Cup. I know quite a lot about, say, the 86 World Cup, but I don't know anything about 94. It just seemed like it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Italia 90 will ring more to us because of England's... Yeah, true. Football. And 86. 86, fair. yeah. I think 94 was won by Brazil. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah it was so, um, but, I, you know, I, I'm the same as well. I, I know a bit more because Nigeria actually played quite well in that World Cup. Mm, um, that kit. Yeah. Yeah, 94 and 98 were pretty good World Cups for Nigeria. So those two I remember a bit more. Well, I've looked into a bit more. But uh, kind of go back on to Gerard Houllier. He remained as technical director for the France national team until 1998, 
where his role during that time included managing various youth setups, mainly the under 18s and the under 20s. But that role was really, really key, right? Because it was seen as really helpful in developing what was said to be France's golden generation, which included Henri and David Trezeguet. Mm. He also helped oversee some of the best talents at Clairefontaine, which I'm going to mention again as a podcast I'd love to do. So <laughs> players like Nicolas Anelka, um, he helped uh, nurture and develop into the player that he was. And we know how good those three players were. Mm. Uh, he was actually also assistant to M. Jacquet, who was a French manager who actually won the 98 uh, tournament for France. Uh, Thierry Henry himself said that Julio, as a character, uh, he was devastated to hear the news about the passing of Gerard Julio. He said that he was more than just a coach, he was a mentor too. Mm. He gave me the armband for the under 17s, 18s, and 19 teams, and we won the European Championship on the way to the under 20 World Cup together. He added, What a man and what a coach. It's a sad day for French football. I kind of feel like that ties into the whole narrative of his development of youth which we're beginning to see and his development of players is really key and we're also seeing how much he resonates with people not just on the pitch but off it as well yeah like i said danny murphy said uh, similar things on talk sport heard interview with him um and on also match of the day um, he said that if gerard would call him up um when he was playing for fulham you know danny claims that gerard helped build the foundations for the current success which surprised me a bit because that was at a time when liverpool's club structure was a lot different i don't think fenway sports group was was there at that time? I could be wrong. Um, and also their structure now with just the likes of you know, I think Martin Edwards at sporting director level, for example. There's a lot. It's a very different structure. So I was surprised to hear that he felt the foundations had been built by Gerard in the way that perhaps he had. But you know, we'll go on to discuss that. Yeah, I, I kind of see where Danny's coming from, but it's very, very loosely. You know, he left in 2004, and Liverpool became extremely yeah. competitive. A decade longer than a decade later but yeah after his time in France you are correct uh, Gerard moved to Liverpool to become joint manager with first team coach Roy Evans so I have to give a bit of backstory in this because I remember reading this when I was growing up and it just didn't really make sense to me because it's one of those things that you, you don't see at all in football today it was it was like semi-successful in the 90s there were a few managers that had joint control but it wasn't particularly that successful uh, so prior to his arrival Roy Evans was the sole manager of Liverpool for four seasons taking over from everyone's favourite Sky Sports pundit Graham Souness uh, Evans was said to be crucial in steadying the ship and ascending, assembling a talented young side that had threatened to win the league on a few occasions but the issue that Evans had was there were inconsistencies and each year they happened to finish with three or less points in the previous campaign. So Julio was kind of brought in and they were meant to like kind of work together. Um, but many at the club saw this as a demotion for Evans. You know, the questions being asked, who decides who plays, who yeah. decides players, yeah, yeah. who decides tactics. And, you know, it, it was all a bit of a mess. And unfortunately, Evans left after a few months saying he was being undermined by Julier and then Julier took over. And that is when the revolution truly kicked off. So that summer, Paul Ince, David James, Jason McAteer, Rob Jones, Tony Warner, Steve Harkness were all sold, while Steve McManaman left on a free transfer. Eight new players joined. Sami Hupia, Dietmar Haman, Stefan Honcho, Vladimir Schmitzer, Sander Vesteral, Titi Kamara, Erich Meyer, and Jajimi Traore. Mm. The club's youth players, such as Jamie Carragher, Michael Owen, and Stephen Gerrard, also became the cornerstones of the team. And Melwood's training facilities were overhauled 
and completely revamped. That rebuilding job didn't just stop there. It continued in 2000. So you could see this huge influx of specifically European talent coming in uh, with the signings of Marcus Babel, Nicky Bambi, Peggy Arpheds, uh, Georgie Vinal, uh, Emil Heskey, Gary McAllister, Igor Bishkan, Christian Ziga, as well as departures including David Thompson, Phil Babb, Dominic Mateo, Steve Taunton, Brad Fiedel, and Sting Ing Bronby. That's a lot of names there. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of names. There's a couple of names that are yeah, questionably pronounced, but yeah, there's a lot overall, of overall, overall, seven out of ten. There's a lot of names. Uh, cheers, thank you very much. But I just wanted to highlight like how much flux of players are coming in and out of the club in mm. a short space of time. I mean, you know, it's it's like eight in, eight out, eight in, eight out. But that season, you know, the efforts yielded great success with uh, Julio winning the League Cup against Birmingham City on pens. The FA Cup, they produced a fantastic comeback to defeat Arsenal 2-1 thanks to Michael Owen. Yeah, yeah, I remember that game really well. Um, well, obviously not really well. I was only six at the time, but the highlights of it, um, yeah, Owen did us. I think it was two goals in the last 15 minutes, which was a shame. And in the UEFA Cup, they defeated Alaves 5-4 in a truly uh, thrilling game which was decided on penalties not penalties sorry golden goal by none other than Gary McAllister uh, the man himself yeah Johan Cruyff's son um, Jordi Cruyff he played in that game actually for yeah, top fact that um, going back to your uh, your comments on the joint managerial um, positions there I recall when I think a lot of people will know this when um, Louis van Gaal came to Barcelona when uh, Bobby Robson was still there and initially it was on a like, kind of a joint basis but then it was just clear that, you know, the idea would be that Bobby would be pushed back, eventually became, I think, kind of a sporting director within that and then ended up leaving the club. And I think that happens often. I mean, I don't know if two managers can truly work in tandem like that without one being more dominant. Depends on the personalities and the existing relationships, if they already have one, which here it didn't seem like Julian Roy Evans would have done so. So it just seemed like it, that, yeah, you're right. It seemed like that was always going to be the case that Julian would eventually become the manager, but what a, what a nostalgic throwback of players as well. I mean, where do you, where do you begin with that list of players? Um, a number of players you actually mentioned were key performers in the 2005 Champions League winning campaign, um, which people, you know, people often say that Rafa Benitez won that Champions League with Julia's team, um, which I think you, sh- you shouldn't take away from Rafa's achievement uh, that, se- that season. I mean, you've got to go th- a full campaign in the league and in Europe and in the d- domestic cups. And it's an achievement regardless of what squad you have to win competitions. But it does prove Danny Murphy's point about kind of a foundation that you touched on that has been built in terms of a squad overhaul um, and, you know, the talent that's been brought in from overseas, but potentially unearthing gems from lesser known leagues. I saw people come in such as, you know, Sammy Hippier, who played in the final, uh, as did Jimmy Chiori, as did Vladimir Smitsu, who scored uh, Dieter Harman start in the final, I believe, uh, as well as alongside the likes of Carragher and Gerard, who obviously the, the youth coming through. And finally, on that point, Chez. We can't mention Phil Barb without mentioning him colliding with goalpost. Have you? I'm assuming you've seen this. Yeah, I have to. <laughs> it's not, not. Wasn't a great day for him. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> I hope he's made a full recovery, which I'm, I assume he has. But you never know because that, <laughs> that was a big old collision. Um, mm. But kind of, kind of, we've spoken about his time, kind of as a coach during these clubs, and we've briefly touched on what he was like as a manager. But I wanted to focus on it a little bit more. Um, mm. Julio was less of a training ground, hands-on boss and more of a general manager uh, with philosophies that enabled success to be planned for. Uh, his idea was to provide players with the right environment for them to succeed. He was a disciplinarian, but wasn't you know all about shouting and the hysterics like 
someone like a Mourinho or mm. maybe a Graham Souness type of figure. He was seen as a top manager who wanted to bring a continental style to the Premier League. Uh, Mirror his compatriot Arsene Wenger. Continental style, right? Is, something <laughs> which is like, you know, it, when I think of continental style, I think of continental breakfasts and a pint of Heineken. That's <laughs> And, you know, it's often banded around, but kind of to dig a bit deeper than that, I think during that time in English football, he was undergoing a lot of reconstruction with foreign coaches. And I think the continental style is what a lot of European coaches are bringing in was diet became extremely important. Yep. There yep. were new training methods, not just in terms of how they're using the ball, but how they were off it. And in terms of recovery, a lot of these coaches focused a lot on if you get injured, let's have surgery, but let's also look at to preventative methods. So they speak at length about how Julier uh, did a lot of work with Steven Gerrard, who in his youth had injury problems. And a lot of it was trying to find the causation for a lot of his early problems. That was kind of the, the European approach, less of the yeah. toughness, let's stay rigid and compact to open up to new ideas and have more of a European type of style. Uh, you know, Julio's methods were not about passing his genius or experience in high pressure situations, but he just wanted to have certain, you know, uh, environments that he feels that players could actually thrive in. Um, you know, he used his keen eye for detail to welcome player weaknesses. Michael Owen is a very good example. He worked in his weak foot a lot and he believed that, that would give him the best chance to succeed. Uh, Julio was apparently obsessed with the small details of running a club. Uh, Gary McAllister explained uh, that at Liverpool, I sometimes wondered why, oh, why Gerard was so uh, pernickety. But over time, I realised that taking care of so many small things in training and preparation carries through into games. Mm. Julio himself was actually a very resilient character. Uh, he suffered from an aortic dissection uh, during a game against Leeds, uh, during halftime actually, and Phil Thompson had to take over first team duties as he was rushed to hospital. Uh, that obviously affected Julia greatly because it's a very, very serious uh, thing to have happened. Uh, and he ultimately recovered, which was great. And, and Danny Murphy actually shared some insight into the type of character that he was uh, and how much of a brilliant person he was, yeah. saying that Julio called him uh, during times when he wasn't playing well and when he scored the winner versus Man U, even though that he could tell he was extremely weak and still recovering down the phone, yeah. which gives real insight to how much he actually cared about some of his players and how he wanted them. He, wanted, he didn't just see them as the asset, he saw them as the person as well. Ultimately, for Julio, uh, he left Liverpool in 2004 due to issues over tactics and disappointing signings. But he definitely, definitely left a lasting impression on Merseyside. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, you touched on there the foreign influence of kind of diet and preparation and re re rehabilitation. Because uh, I think that often gets overlooked a bit. I think we, you know, everyone's kind of aware of the end of the 90s or mid 90s, start 2000s influx of you know foreign talent managers and then eventually owners with the likes of you know Abramovich and Co. Um, and, you know, in terms of number 10s, you had like Bergkamp, Overmars, Zola come in, Decanio, Cantona came in. Um, and I think there became this demand for kind of more technical, kind of continental, as you say, kind of players that play differently to perhaps what we'd seen before. And, it, you know, it's important not to overlook some of the, the kind of softer details of those influences, as you mentioned. And Julia seemingly was a champion of those as well. Um, so, yeah, so moving on, Eches. So after Liverpool, what's he doing in the latter part of his career? 
Yeah, so he returned to France with Lyon. And uh, back then, if you cast your minds back, Lyon were steamrolling Ligue 1 every year uh, with the likes of Karim Benzema coming through and uh, amongst other players as well. Yeah, he continued the dominance over Ligue 1. However, the aim was for him to dominate Europe or to be successful in Europe. And Lyon failed to do so, getting knocked out of the Champions League by AC Milan and Roma in his two seasons. He fell out with the notoriously outspoken Jean-Michel Aulas and left the club. Uh, his later career saw him return to the international setup as an advisor role. Uh, Julier was then reappointed to technical director for the French national team in 2007. Uh, during 2008, year 2008, France performed poorly. Uh, you know, he advised the French Football Federation to keep faith with Raymond Dominic, uh, but unfortunately, uh, France, you know, crashed and burned in the 2010 World Cup mm. uh, and you know everyone was kind of to blame for that including Dominic and Julier himself after that role he went to Villa where he led them to ninth in his only full season in charge before ill health returned and he had to step down as manager and this is the most interesting part of his career because initially I thought that was the end of Julio but actually yeah. he did quite a lot of football afterwards yeah likewise yeah, yeah he then moved on to uh, the Red Bull's international portfolio of clubs a sporting director where he oversaw you know Red Bull Salzburg the New York Red Bulls and Red Bull Brazil uh, you know he got the feeder club as well FC Liffering uh, involved as well and he kind of oversaw that whole process Jesse Marsh, actually, the head coach of Red, uh, Red Bull Salzburg, spoke glowingly of Julio, uh, saying that Jared is one of the best people I've ever known. He was a dear friend and incredible supporter of mine, especially in the toughest moments. I'll miss you dearly, mon ami. A truly special person. And actually, uh, the interview that went uh, with that, you could tell Jesse Marsh was specifically uh, shaken up by the whole yeah. of the news. Is it actually very emotional as you could see how much you really meant to him. And it, it wasn't really just Jesse Marsh as well from Stephen Gerrard. I remember watching his interview on Sky Sports News and Danny Murphy and Jimmy Carragher. You could tell that these guys are really impacted by by the news, you know, of his passing, which really showed how much he cared for these players and managers. And it, it was so much more than looking at them as the assets and much more about how they are as actual people and human beings. Yeah, it's only when these these people die that you realise or you find out these stories, uh, these connections, uh, people in the game come out and talk about. I mean, Jesse Marsh, I mean, had you known, had I known, which I didn't, that he was involved in the Red Bull portfolio, then that makes more sense. But, you know, until his death, you know, we, you learn so much more about them. And I saw this snippet of Jesse Marsh and I actually had to turn it off. I couldn't watch it because he was really upset. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't watch it all the way through. Maybe that says more about me than anyone else, but... Mm. Uh, yeah, I had no idea of his his involvement in Red Bull, but it's it's you know it's but it's no surprise given what we've talked about today to see them flourishing, um, having benefited from some influence from him. Yeah, and kind of to to round things off, I kind of wanted to look at you know Gerard Julio's overall legacy. You know, what did he actually leave behind? And there's been this ongoing theme throughout the pod where I've kind of alluded to the fact that he. He was much more than just the coach. He, he was yeah. about, it was his personal touch. You know, Wenger spoke about him saying during their years as managers, he was often, it was often a very fiery relationship between the two because Wenger is very competitive. But it was always Jared Hulia that looked to smooth things over after games if Arsenal hadn't won or if, you know, Wenger was upset about something. He said that's what made him stand out. And, and that seemed yeah. to be the theme, whether it's Gerard talking about developing him during his time at Liverpool, whether it's Danny Murphy speaking to him when uh, he was having difficult moments in his career or Jesse March the same. It's that feeling where he saw people for what they did on the pitch 
whether they're very good at it, but really wanted to know more about them off it and saw them as people. And I think that in a game where results are everything and footballers can be and are at times treated like robots, you know, not many people care enough about them as human beings. And Julio seems to be against the run of the grain where he really did care. He wanted to know everything about them. He wanted to see what really made them tick. And I think that's something which should be missed in the game and could definitely be utilised by people within it now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, to be so hardworking and so meticulous um, and so detailed and then also still have time, uh, kind of that, that sense to be a warm person, to look after people as well as human beings is actually just a phenomenal trait because, you know, we see managers in the game now, you know, we have to cast aspersions when we see, you know, press conferences or we read stories, you know, a lot of that goes around Mourinho, he's always in the, in the headlines and, you know, he's an example of someone who's very meticulous in his work and people think that, you know, he doesn't have that warm side. He may do. We might only find that out again when he retires and, you know, further. Um, but it's just a great trait to have. And, you know, his legacy at Liverpool, to an extent, may have been forgotten about somewhat because when Benitez came in, you know, Istanbul happened. They won the Champions League in 2005. You know, Benitez then went on to build with Fernando Torres and like, um, you know, a, a title challenging team. And then obviously now we've got, you know, the the superstars of Liverpool. So it's it could be, you know, it's it's wrong of us to forget about Gerard Hulley and his influence. And as we've talked about today, that influence was clearly so significant to to the kind of journey and narrative that has led to, you know, Champions League success in, you know, now, last year under Klopp and potentially further Premier League success this season. So that's all from us this week. Thank you, Eches, for uh, the research. It's a very, very insightful episode on the late and great Gerard Houllier. Uh, thank you all for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on all our platforms uh, and check out myfootball.co.uk for some written content and all our podcast episodes. Cheers, guys, and we'll see you next week. Cheers. <laughs>